Welcome, and thank you for joining this podcast brought to you by the American Heart Association. The Association's Digital Digest series features a range of podcasts and videos focused on the latest resuscitation science topics. Hello, I'm Dr. Mary McBride. I'm a pediatric cardiac intensivist at uh, Lurie Children's Hospital in Chicago. And um, we will be interviewing Dr. Chopjin today about post-cardiac arrest care in pediatrics. What is post-cardiac arrest syndrome? So I think we really focus oftentimes on um, our immediate resuscitation. We get a pulse back in our patients, and we're so happy to have a pulse back. Um, but at that time, we're really entering a new phase of our resuscitation, and, and that's the post-cardiac arrest syndrome. Um, the post-cardiac arrest syndrome begins from the earliest moments after resuscitation, and is traditionally thought of as four key components. Um, the first is uh, brain injury, um, which we know occurs during the time of hypoxia and ischemia. Um, there's a component of myocardial dysfunction, um, also due to um, hypoxia and ischemia. And then there's a systemic, uh, systemic ischemic reperfusion response. Um, and then finally, the component of what pre-existing pathophysiology, so whatever led to your cardiac arrest in the first place. Um, this is sort of a complex interplay of factors that we will talk about a little bit more um, that tend to ebb and flow over time from the earliest moments after resuscitation and can really go on for um, days and can have long-lasting effects on the patient that can impact outcomes. Okay. How might this differ um, from pediatrics to adults? So I think kids are inherently different than adults in several ways, um, obviously in size and development, but really the cause of arrest is different between adults and children. So um, children don't have much coronary artery disease. They typically um, will have arrests that are more commonly associated with asphyxia, so from respiratory illness. Um, and especially in the out-of-hospital population, we will see more prolonged downtimes for really young um, infants. Adults more commonly will have a ventricular fibrillation or a ventricular tachycardia um, arrest, and so will be shockable. And really, children are much less likely to have a shockable initial rhythm. We also have a special circumstances in our children, so congenital heart disease is common, and so um, we will see that complex interplay of factors as well. And so I think as we look at children, um, we really see their causes of arrest are different, which impacts their resuscitation, and then impacts the time period after their resuscitation. You had mentioned um, some key components. Uh, along with that, what are some key clinical derangements that you might see? So it's a great question. I think if you go back to the post-cardiac arrest syndrome, these four key components, um, we see each of those impacted. So if you start off with looking at the neurologic injury after cardiac arrest um, and, this, and this ischemia to the brain, um, we see cerebral edema. Um, we can see encephalopathy. We will see seizures. Um, there can be central fevers that are associated with brain injury. This is really a spectrum. So for this component, you can see the most mildest or no impact and down through the most severe um, that can culminate in diabetes insipidus from profound brain injury. Um, when you look at myocardial um, impact, you will see patients that can have uh, myocardial dysfunction and that can appear as um, depressed shortening fractions or ejection fractions. We see arrhythmias um, commonly in the post-arrest period. Um, sometimes we see tachycardia um, that is sort of out of proportion to what you might expect. And then with the systemic ischemic reperfusion syndrome, um, it's really a complex interplay of factors that can almost look like a sepsis syndrome. Um, and those components may be hyperglycemia. Um, you may see some vasoplegia. We know that hypotension is quite common 
um, and oftentimes can require vasopressor inotropic support. We see adrenal insufficiency um, and um, then other end organ injuries such as acute kidney injury. Um, we can see shock liver. Um, and so this sort of spectrum along with whatever caused the arrest, whether it's asthma, drowning, septic shock, or pulmonary hypertension, really requires a combined focus and a lot of anticipation on the care mm -hmm. of the uh, part of the care team to care for these children to improve their outcomes. Great. What evidence and guidelines do we have to guide treatment? So in the 2015 guidelines um, for pediatric post-cardiac arrest care, there was um, some great data that really helped guide us in our initial phases of resuscitation. Um, those components are targeted temperature management, I'll talk a little bit more about, mm -hmm. um, blood pressure guidance, um, a little bit of neuroprognostication, and then focus on some um, ventilatory management components. So in 2015, um, targeted temperature management was really focused on um, looking at studies that had compared therapeutic hypothermia to 33 degrees, um, compared to therapeutic normothermia, 36.8 degrees. And the recommendation at the time for out-of-hospital cardiac arrest was that because the studies were um, showed no difference between groups, that TTM should be utilized to one of those two targets. Mm -hmm. Really a focus on preventing fever, continuously monitoring, and then doing active protocols to prevent um, high fever. For in-hospital cardiac arrest, the data was not quite as clear at the time, and so no clear recommendation could be made. Um, the in-hospital study has since been published, and that showed no difference between those groups. Um, and so while there has not been a clear statement yet as to from the Heart Association, um, fever prevention is critically important um, for that population as well. What are some strategies that you use clinically at your institution to prevent fever? So for our patients, when we have a cardiac arrest um, patient coming from the out-of-hospital setting or a child who's arrested in hospital, we um, will place a central temperature probe, and so that will either be esophageal, rectal, or bladder. Um, and then we have a cooling machine that's servo-regulated that's put in place with a blanket underneath the patient and one above. And we set the blanket to 36 degrees at our institution, which is our local practice and, mm -hmm. and not a heart association recommendation, knowing that our goal is to prevent fever. Mm -hmm. And then this um, blanket will regulate the temperature and prevent fever during that time. We also use Tylenol um, because sometimes we think it may help the blanket work a little less hard. Mm -hmm. And so we use the combination of those two factors. But it is a very proactive approach. Um, we try to be less reactive and really plan ahead knowing that fever may be coming down the pike and mm -hmm. we want to prevent it. Okay. Um, the second um, thing that the guidelines addressed was blood pressure. Um, we know that during the first six to eight hours after cardiac arrest, hypotension is common in children. We know that it's associated with worse outcomes. We therefore have really focused on trying to prevent hypotension or at least responding quickly. So the first um, thing we do is measure it. Mm -hmm. um, arterial lines are used commonly in our more severely injured patients, if possible. Um, and then we looked at data that showed that children with a blood pressure that is less than the fifth percentile for age and sex um, had worse outcomes. Mm -hmm. And so the recommendation is to use fluid, vasopressors, and inotropes as um, deemed appropriate by the clinical team to keep the blood pressure above the fifth percentile. While we don't know if that actually impacts outcomes because no interventional studies have been um, performed yet, it is logical that patients who have hypotension will have less perfusion to the brain um, and more ongoing myocardial ischemia and organ damage. And so we manage blood pressure that way. Um, and then I think the next component is ventilatory management. So studies have looked at oxygenation and ventilation, especially in the animal setting, 
and they found that super high levels of oxygen are associated with worse outcomes or hyperoxia. Um, and clinical studies have been somewhat equivocal, but because it is uncommon that patients need to have a saturation greater than 100%, mm-hmm. we recommend that you wean your supplemental oxygen, um, if you're in a safe setting, to target saturations between 94 and 99%. And in doing so, we think that you may prevent what's potentially harmful hyperoxia. Mm-hmm. While hypoxia is not ideal either, um, oftentimes it can be more challenging in these critically ill patients. And then obviously in special circumstances like the single ventricle population, Mm -hmm. you need to target their goal saturations. Ventilation, um, we also focus on. So um, that data really is equivocal. What is the optimal CO2 range? And while we don't have a clear um, number, it's important to prevent um, high CO2 if feasible because of the um, leading to cerebral vasodilation, as well as um, severe hypo or sorry hyperventilation um, can lead to cerebral vasoconstriction. And then you have to take the patient's circumstances into account because some patients just live at higher CO2 mm-hmm. levels, and so bringing them down to normal may not make sense. So I think a lot of this is really focusing on these metrics and looking at them. Mm-hmm. And then I think the final thing is um, we've looked at the use of EEG for prognostication. Um, there is data that EEG may be a factor that you want to utilize in determining whether or not um, you want to prognosticate. But like every factor we use, you don't want to use it in isolation mm-hmm. and should look at it over time um, and factor in whether or not your patient is hypothermic as you interpret these data. Okay. How does this approach differ in pediatrics uh, relative to adults? So it's interesting. I think there are a lot of things um, that are very similar between adults and children in in terms of post-cardiac arrest care. Um, General monitoring, um, the syndrome is really quite similar, um, just the cause of arrest is different. But I think one of the main differences is that adults more commonly have um, ST elevation MI, and that's really uncommon Mm -hmm. in children. So whereas adults after cardiac arrest may go to the cath lab, children usually do not. Mm-hmm. Um, and so this really ties into the um, persistent precipitating um, pathophysiology of the rest and really thinking about why has this arrest happened and what do I need to anticipate? Um, and I think that, that ties into etiology. In pediatrics, um, we also very commonly will use eCPR. Um, and while that is not a strict recommendation, um, certain settings there may be access, especially in our congenital heart population mm-hmm. and CICUs, um, that is part of our resuscitation um, oftentimes, mm-hmm. and therefore the way we think about post-cardiac arrest care may also tie into how we provide um, ECMO support. Mm-hmm. And you mentioned many of these already, but what are the steps in managing um, a pediatric patient who, has, who requires post-cardiac arrest care? So I think it's really important for the clinician um, to immediately realize that you've shift phases. So um, I think we oftentimes in the emergency room setting or at the bedside, in those first moments after resuscitation, you want to stop and and make a plan. So you've got a pulse back. Um, Oftentimes, these patients may be hyper or hypotensive, either due to residual epinephrine on board, or they may um, have just severe persistent shock. Mm -hmm. And so huddling together as a team, talking about what your next steps are, anticipating what is going to happen. We know hypotension is coming. We know fever is coming. Um, Or perhaps our patient is hypothermic Mm -hmm. because of the arrest. So um, implement post-arrest care immediately. Get your monitoring in place. Um, Monitor those vital signs. If you think um, and have access to vasopressors, have them available, get them in line, be ready to react immediately instead Mm -hmm. of having to wait. 
if you have a center where you can get EEG monitoring in place, mm -hmm. um, prepare that seizures may be coming and talk about what you may be able to do. If you're in a setting that does not have access to those resources, think about transferring mm -hmm. to a center that may um, and getting consultants and support um, involved to help you. Great. Thank you, Dr. Topgen, for your expertise. And thank you to all of you for joining us today. Views expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of the American Heart Association and the American Stroke Association. For transcripts of this podcast and more information about resuscitation science, please visit cpr.heart.org or engage with us via social media using hashtag ECC Digital Digest.